Hello, podcast friends. I hope that all is well in your world. As I write this podcast, I am finishing my 68th trip around the sun, and tomorrow I will begin number 69. Who ever thought being old was really a thing? Of course, I knew I would get old someday, but on an emotional level, I don't think I ever thought that day would come. But it has. And I guess I have to admit that I am officially old. But I am here to tell you that old age is not as bad as everyone says. Right now, I am actually loving it. Thankfully, I'm healthy enough to enjoy it for now. And I feel like I'm learning and I'm growing more than I ever have. It is just a great season for me. And this podcast is very much about sharing some of that learning and growth with you. So from this officially old man, welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. there is anything that I feel secure about when it comes to what I believe, it's that God is mystery. Not mystery in the fact that God can't be known, but in the fact that God can infinitely be known. Richard Rohr calls it infinite knowability. Every time I discover or experience something new of God, it just opens me up to so much more that there is to know and experience. Last week we spoke of deconstruction, and in some ways, this is a continuation of that thought. Sometimes I have to let go of some understanding of God before I can come to a new experience or a new understanding of God. Let let me give you an example. I've told this story before here, and if you've ever heard me, or if we've ever had like a face-to-face conversation about my own journey, I've probably told you the story, so forgive me. When I was studying at Baptist Theological College in Johannesburg, South Africa, I had this class where I had to read through the entire Bible in a couple of weeks. I read the Bible for hours every day. And when you read the Old Testament from cover to cover, hours a day, you come face to face with something akin to a bad version of Game of Thrones. Sex, violence, murder, genocide, rape, war, and on and on and on. That process and the crisis of faith that pursued helped me over time to let go of this idea of God being violent and vengeful. But only when I let that go was I able to begin to embrace a new, a different view of God that is beautiful and that is veiled in mystery. The Bible is filled with metaphors that are used to describe God. God is like a rock, or like a mother hen, or God is a raging storm, or like a calm stream. 
or like a warrior or like a shepherd. Now, those things sound like they're totally contradicting each other. But the way I see it is that it's different authors expressing their different experiences of God, this infinite knowability. And to some, the experience was very caring and loving and actually very feminine. To others, God was experienced as a strong and a brave warrior-like character. It's the mystery of God in full view throughout the Bible. But there's one metaphor that I've been thinking about for quite a while now. It's the metaphor of God as light. So many of the biblical authors experience God in this way. I sat down and researched all the references of God depicted as light in the Bible that I thought might be relevant to this podcast, and I came up really quickly with like 30 of them. Needless to say, we're not going to look at all of them, but it's really fascinating to look at. Before we get too far into this, though, let me point out that it's not just Christianity that uses this metaphor of God as light. Buddhism claims that light is the source of all goodness and of the ultimate reality. In the Quran, it says that God is the light of the heavens and the earth. God experienced as light is not an exclusively Christian thing. And here's the thing about light that I want us to keep in mind as we go through this podcast. Light is not so much about what you directly see. It's actually that by which you see everything else. It's not about the light as much as it's about what the light illuminates. As I sit here at my computer looking outside, the sun is shining beautifully. And I'm not really looking at the light, though. I'm looking at the beautiful lake and the grass and the birds and the trees. The light makes the water sparkle and even looks like it's kind of dancing. But it's not the light that I see, but that by which I see everything else. So if we say that God is light, then what we are saying is that God is that by which I see everything. God is the illumination of everything around me. So keep that in mind as we move through this. The first creation story in the book of Genesis states that the first thing that God created was light, and it was good. Now we know by now that light is generated by the sun, a massive ball of fire that's in the sky. But my point is that the thing by which everything else is seen was the very first thing that was created. And then when you read on in the Genesis story, you come to Moses, and Moses has this experience at a burning bush. And the, the bush is on fire, but it doesn't actually consume the bush. In other words, it's this bright light that is coming out of this bush. God is seen, 
in the light. Now let's jump ahead to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of the Jewish people escaping slavery from Egypt with Moses as their leader. They cross the Red Sea safely and they find themselves in the wilderness. Now theologians tell us there could have been as many as two million of them. So how are they going to live in the wilderness? Where are they going to eat? How are they going to get to where they are going? Well, God provided for all of those things. But God's presence was seen as a cloud in the day that would lead them. But then at night there was a fire in the sky, a light to guide them. A light of the very presence of God. So a little Jewish child could ask his dad, Dad, where is God? And the dad could point up to the light in the sky and say, God's right there, my boy. So you see this picture early in the story of the Jewish people where God is experienced as light. In in Psalm 27, there's this beautiful passage that says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. In whom then shall I fear? Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God is experienced as light, illuminating the way, showing the very presence of God, the light by which we see everything. Now let's jump ahead to the New Testament. Let's go to the book of John. John speaks of the Logos of God, the very Word of God, being Jesus. And and he says this, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When the Apostle Paul speaks of his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, he experiences Jesus as a light that is so bright, he was actually blinded for a few days. There's the story in all three of the synoptic gospels that we call the transfiguration. John doesn't tell the story, but seems to allude to it in chapter 1, verse 14. But as the gospels tell it, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain to pray. And while he was there, Jesus began to shine with this very bright light. And then it says, suddenly Moses and Elijah were there, and the story gets a little bit weird. But But you see Peter, James, and John experiencing Jesus as light. So there's this picture all over the New Testament as Jesus being the one through whom everything is seen clearly. The one who exposes the darkness. And that's exactly what Jesus did through his teaching. There's a book that I really highly recommend by Marcus Borg. It's called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. It's just fantastic. But in this book, he speaks about the wisdom of Jesus. He speaks about Jesus bringing light in the darkness. He says there's two different kinds of wisdom. There's conventional wisdom, 
which is like the collective wisdom of a culture. It's that the thing we've always believed for a really long time, and it's pretty much unchallenged because it's just always been there. But then he says there's another kind of wisdom. It's subversive wisdom. Subversive wisdom challenges the thinking of the conventional. Or we could say it this way. Subversive wisdom brings light into the darkness. And Jesus was all about subversive wisdom. Now, with that in mind, think about the way that Jesus taught. Almost all of his teaching was through parables and aphorisms, which are these little, like, one-liners, gems of truth without a lot of explanation. So, an example might be, it's harder for a rich man to get to heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He doesn't really define like what rich is or is it about the rich man's attitude or is it about how much money, like where's the line? He, he just puts it out there. Or how about this one? What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So what does that mean actually what does that look like jesus so explain it jesus give me some examples give me some illustrations but he doesn't do that and what is he doing when he does those things he's just bringing light into the darkness he's just throwing out something to help people see and then how you interpret that in your life is up to you it's like jesus is saying here just figure it out then, of course, there are the parables, most of which go completely uninterpreted by Jesus. Now, we preachers love to pretend we know exactly what Jesus was on about, but we don't really. So why did Jesus do that? He was bringing light and then just letting us see for ourselves. He didn't say, here is exactly what you must do, or here is exactly what you must believe. He just shone a light so we could see for ourselves. Marcus Borg says it this way, As a teacher of wisdom, Jesus was not primarily a teacher of information, what to believe, or morals, how to behave, but a teacher of a way or a path of transformation. Transformation to a life centered on God. So in my words, I would say Jesus came to bring light in the darkness. And light brings transformation. But then in the book of Matthew, there is this amazing turn during what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You find this in chapter 5, like verses 14 and 15. And, and I want to read this to you. Um, th these are the words of Jesus. He says, You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines on all of those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Not only is Jesus the light of the world, he says you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Remember what we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast. Light is not so much about what you directly see. It's actually that by which you see everything else. That is us. We are the light of the world. That idea is all over the New Testament. Ephesians says, walk as children of the light. Philippians says, you shine as lights into the world. First Thessalonians says, you are the children of the light. First John says, walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. So what does all that mean? It means it matters how we live. It matters how we show up in the world, how we love our neighbor. I think that Christianity or the Christian church has largely missed this. We don't bring light. We tell people exactly how they must think and act and what they must believe. And if you don't think and act and believe right, man, it starts to get really uncomfortable. I think we are afraid that if we are not super clear about what people must believe, they might believe wrong. And if we want them to believe as we do, then we must tell them very, very clearly what to believe. It doesn't seem to me that Jesus was too worried about how people interpreted his one-liners and his parables. He just put them out there for them to interpret in a way that was beneficial for them. In fact, I would go as far as to say that maybe that was the point. It's as if Jesus was saying, okay, guys, here's some, here's some light. Shine it on your heart and see what you come up with and see if in that you aren't transformed. So as I, I wrap these thoughts up, I want to address two different groups of people. First of all, those of you that are in occupational ministry. And then those of you that are in the difficult process of deconstruction. Now, some of you probably find yourself in both of those groups, and that's fine. But to my occupational ministry friends, whether you're, you know, kids' church or missions or you're a pastor or you're a worship leader, whatever that looks like for you, I want to suggest something that I think is really important. People are not transformed because we give them seven steps to transformation. They are transformed when we simply are the light. People are not transformed because of what they believe. People are transformed as they are exposed to the light and when they interpret that light in their own lives. For pastors, that feels risky. I get that. I've been there. 
but you are the light of the world. And this, by the way, goes way beyond the ministry platform. How you show up in the world matters. But sometimes I think the problem is we get confused about the difference between light and truth. We think that what it means to be the light of the world is to speak our truth and to declare that it is the truth or it is the light. And it seems quite arrogant to me to somehow believe that my view is the truth on a matter. I mean, how often have you heard a pastor say, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Really? The truth is that you're telling us your interpretation of what's in the Bible. And again, it's quite arrogant, I think, to say that your interpretation is the truth on the matter. And not only is it arrogant, but when I believe that I have the corner on truth, man, it is so easy to become judgmental about everybody else. And so then our teaching comes across as intolerant and judgmental and angry, but we justify it by saying, hey, don't blame me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Okay, here's a, here's a crazy thought, pastors. What if when we got up in the pulpit, we spoke in parables as much as Jesus did? Just make up a story and leave it there. I mean, like if our sermons, every, like every sermon was like five minutes long and they all started with once upon a time and then we just leave it for people to interpret for themselves. Okay, you might get fired if you do that for too long, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. Let's be humble and admit that we don't have the line on exclusive truth, but we can shine some light. If we take this approach, we will be way more comfortable with people that are deconstructing their faith in our midst. We just continue to bring light and then we trust the process in their lives. Or to put it in traditional language, we trust the work of the Spirit in their lives. And if we're doing that, we can celebrate their deconstruction and their questions and their doubts, and we don't have to be intimidated by them. But here's what I see happening in the church so often these days. People start questioning and doubting. Maybe they see contradictions in the Bible that don't seem to make sense, or maybe the things that we pastors promise them are true doesn't really ring true in their lives. And they're questioning, it creates tension, because there's this culture in the church that's either spoken or unspoken, but it's there, and it says that those doubts and questions are not okay, and so people leave. They feel like they have no choice but to leave. But what if their questions were celebrated? What if the culture of the community was, you don't have to believe just like we do. It's okay. You struggle with the idea that a virgin had a baby. Okay, no problem. You have questions about whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. Okay, 
you are still part of this community, whether or not you believe these things and whether or not you ever change your mind on these things. See, I think that's what it means for the church to be the light of the world. Jesus, get me here, Jesus never said you were the truth of the world. But he did say, you are the light of the world. Now, to those of you that are in the process of deconstructing and reimagining, I want to celebrate you. I want to say, good job. Keep it up. I know it's not easy sometimes, but keep it up. When I started in this process of podcasting a couple of years ago, I said I wasn't trying to get you to think like I think. I was just trying to get you to think. Well, that is still true today. I'm just trying to bring some light in some way, shape, or form so that you can let go of what you need to let go of and reimagine a new way forward. So keep moving forward. Keep letting go and keep reimagining and let that process transform you. I want to leave you with a passage from the book of Revelation. And this may seem a little weird, so hang with me. But the author of Revelation is relating this vision that he has of a future. A picture of what could be. A picture of what might be. And I really hope a picture of what is to be. It's a beautiful picture. And it really is what I believe the world can be if we could embrace being the light of the world. Here it is from Revelation 21. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations to it. I believe that that can be. As all of us learn to be the light, to be that by which everything else is seen. Okay, I hope that helps somebody somewhere. And can I say, it's really good to be back podcasting again. I'm not sure where we're going to go next, but I have a lot of ideas. The other day, my, my grandkids were here, and they're spending the night in our RV with us for the first time. My granddaughter had a pencil and some paper and was drawing and writing. And later, I saw the picture she had drawn. And on a separate page, she wrote these words, and they just kind of capture how I'm feeling these days. She wrote, I write because I have a pencil in my hand and lots of ideas in my head. So there you go. I'll keep writing and recording because I have a lot of ideas in my head. And I hope they bring some light. Have a great week. Shalom.